welcome back to Get With The Programme. We're here again. We've been away for uh, about a year and we haven't given you a proper series since series one. So we're making up for that now um, with a full, uh, full series two. Um, and uh, Campbell's here with us uh, as usual. Hi. Um, hi. Uh, we've also got a couple of new hosts for you this series. Um, so you can hear Jackie chuckling away. Hi. Um, do you want to introduce yourself, Jackie? Hi. Hi. So I'm Jackie. Um, I'm the Outreach and Communications Coordinator for the TV Foundation the TV Festival. I'm sure you've probably got an email from me or you've met me or you're going to meet me. So this is me. Um, we've also got yeah, Abby. Hi, I'm Abby. I am, I'm a development producer at Full Flat TV. I am also a alumni of the talent schemes and I have infiltrated this podcast. Great. Uh, <laughs> great. Great. Um so it's that time of year again. Uh, we said at the beginning of every podcast, but we're open for applications now for the network and ones to watch. And Abby, like you said you did the network in two thousand and fifteen. I think I think I think it was two thousand I think it was more yeah. Well, evidently it was somewhere in the mid north ones. <laughs> I don't know why. I, yeah, I don't know why I'm questioning this. This is not this is not podcast gold. But still, <laughs> back back to facts. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of fake news out there. <laughs> um, and I mean, you work in TV, so the network obviously work for you. Yeah, exactly. I've stayed in TV, and I've got lots of friends who are now like producers um, in digital, um, in in on the business side as well, who also did the network with me. So you'll probably be hearing from some of them at some point in this podcast as well. Great. Um, so we've all been out recording content for this series, um, doing interviews, and we're going to keep doing some, um, mostly, well, almost entirely, I think, virtually. Uh, you'll probably be able to tell when you listen to this that we're not all in the same room. Um, and it probably goes without saying why that is. <laughs> we're in lockdown. It's point in time. So we're going to keep this a kind of a news-free space, I think. So our first episode of the series is on yours, Campbell. Since you did it a little while ago now, it is a little while ago. It's it's kind of deep in the archive. And uh, Rabin, if you're listening to this, I'd sort of like to apologise over the podcast for it, for it taking so long. But we were all kind of revved up to do a second season, and then for reasons too boring to go into, we we, we didn't do it. But this was going to be such a cracking first episode. But the magic of it is, is it's it's kind of timeless. Like Rabin's story is really interesting kind of works in a part of tv that i think doesn't get talked about very much and um, he's kind of like a a newsman but he's also a digital man he's kind of a bit of a renaissance figure in television and looks at things in a really different way and not necessarily with like a typical kind of tv mindset so i find whenever i just talk to rabin even when we're not recording it i always learn lots about sort of the future really of media and where it's headed but this is a great chat it's really kind of personal as well kind of goes through Rabin's kind of personal story and we cover everything from uh, professional wrestling uh, <laughs> to kind of the digital landscape and uh, Rabin's kind of adventures growing up and his travels and the time he spent living in India. I think all of these things, yeah, really kind of feed into his kind of outlook in the world. Um, so it was a real treat. Um, so I'm glad that we're finally being able to um, get it out there and I think you'll all enjoy it, whether you're um, a news person or a digital person. But um, I just thought before we signed off, maybe uh, 
we could give people some recommendations. Like, what do people, what have you been watching on TV this week? Now that that's all we can do. I've watched a lot. I've watched all of Noughts and Crosses. On oh, I love it. Because they so dropped good. it on iPlayer. It's really good. Although so one good. of my friends said she was disappointed about it. She thought, wanted it to go further. But I was like, isn't it copying the book? That's my ultimate recommendation. Oh, God. Mine is... I'm just binge-watching at the moment. So at the moment, I'm obsessed with celebs go dating. I know it's cheesy. I know it's corny. It's such an easy watch. Isn't Alison Hammond on it this year? She is, and she's brilliant. Sorry, love Alison Hammond. She is absolutely brilliant because she's a great host anyway. And she's finding love, and it's great. Who has she found love? Alison? I think she has now, and hopefully she doesn't push this guy in the pool. That's what she did on this morning. She pushed the guy in the water. <laughs> but no, yeah, it's that's my kind of guilty pleasure at the moment. What about you, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, I've been rewatching Brooklyn Nine Nine again because, like Jackie says, it's it's escapism. But I'm really excited. Uh, I have to say because Gardner's World is back this week, which is my <laughs> ultimate escapist TV. I just love watching Monty Don and his dogs walk around the garden. Can, Mon- can Monty Don do like, that? Will we be able to still do that? Yeah, they still <laughs> they've got they've got some of it. We'll see. We'll find out. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> uh, it's just like Monty comes out and he's like, "Yeah, he's going to plant some seeds. He quietly plants the seeds, and then uh, it's perfect Friday night viewing. That's what I'm doing on Friday night. In case anyone wants an insight into my life, so, uh, that's, that's good." It will feel like being outdoors. It'll be good. Yeah, exactly. I think I think I might come out. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Sky Comedy launched a few weeks ago, and with that, they sort of dropped lots of box sets on there. So there's lots of good stuff there. So I'm I'm revisiting uh, season one of Insecure because um, I need to catch up with the oh, later right. seasons. So I've just um, finished rewatching my first season. Um, Mrs. Fletcher with Catherine Harms, really good. I like anything with Catherine Harms. Um, but yeah, anything that's not news, I'm, I'm bang up for it at the moment. So, but we'll be we'll be back for more in the next episode. Sarah, have you got any like links and tips and things people can do? Well, the next few weeks, what we are going to be doing, um, because we're all confined to our houses, is I'm going to be online um, a couple of times a week for each scheme doing some div information sessions so if you go on our website um all the info's there and you can sign up and i'll send you the zoom meeting info and then we'll all get together and i will tell you more about that for the network or want to watch whichever thing you're interested in answering questions um and that'll just give you everything you need to know uh to put together a good application um and it'll be a good opportunity to chat to some people as well see some faces that's something that you're lacking um I think those are going to be fun. The first one's going to be on Wednesday the 25th um, of March for Once to Watch. And then I'll be doing every Wednesday and Friday Once to Watch and every Tuesday and Thursday. Whenever. So you can find out all that information on our website. Fantastic. Great. Well, um, let's enjoy my chat with Bradley. Hi Raven, good to see you. Hey Campbell, how are you doing? Great, it's uh, fantastic to be finally sitting down with you. We're overlooking, uh, for those of you who want a visual picture, we're looking down on the on the newsroom um, on, on the eighth floor of Newport Casting House. Actually, we're on the fourth. Fourth floor? Yeah, 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 we're on the fourth. So 
Yeah. Oh yeah. What? Yeah. Maybe it feels like the eighth floor. It does. It feels very. It's it's quite scary looking down, but it's uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it's one of the nicer venues we've had. There it's daunting. It is quite daunting. It's not very nice down there though. There's no windows, and you get no sunlight at all. It's like a casino. It, yeah, it's actually like a casino. That's really yeah. yeah. yeah I think that's the main thing. So people don't leave. People but don't leave. No clocks on the wall. That's actually, it. Maybe they do have clocks on the wall, like the international clocks. Yeah, they've got the yeah. international clocks. Yeah, they've got the international clocks. Oh, fantastic. How's well, your coffee, by the way? My coffee is lovely. I've been treated to uh, handmade Aeropress coffee. So um, I apologise in advance if I come across as over caffeinated. I don't think I will. I think I'll be okay. Um, but it's something about me. It's about you, Rabin. Oh, right. And okay. um, well, I'd like to start really by sort of starting at the beginning and some of your kind of early memories of, of things you've watched growing up when you were when you were, when you were a small one. Little one, little yeah. Rav. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we've, all, like, we've always had a big TV in the house. Um, and um, I think like my earliest memories is probably around sports. Because sports was like a massive thing in the house. Um, the big match. Yeah. Um, you know, England internationals and match of the day those are all like big things um but i i think my earliest memory is probably watching james bond um it used to come on you know on i on, on lwt it used to come on tv quite a bit you know the repeats and the reruns and stuff and i think watching bond actually is my earliest memory i remember sitting there watching my parents and every time there was like a sex scene they change the channel you know yeah um lot of channel changing potentially with Bond. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, only, four, only four channels there, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah that's true. Nowhere else to go, really. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so like James Bond is probably one of my earliest memories, actually. I, was, I remember like Sundays and especially around Christmas, like you know, um, and Minder used to finish like next on LWT, which is London Weekend Television. That's you know? such a weird concept now when you think about it. It's like that it would. And I'm sure obviously there's a, probably a story behind it, but the idea is like, right, we're now moving to a different franchise, which yeah. just has it for the weekend. Exactly. And it felt like everyone from Thames like going home and like just shutting it up, and they're like, right, we're handing over to these guys. <laughs> it was a weird thing, actually. Yeah. yeah, when, yeah. You think, when, you, when you think about it, it's yeah. quite odd. Yeah, I think it's quite odd. Yeah. I, I, just, I just remember, like, you know, you know, I always remember that LWT sign coming up, and then like, Roger Moore started Octopussy, and then that big, was it Metro Goldwyn, the line? Yes. Oh, <laughs> I need to go straight to the music like yes and there was a beat to it and I used to get into it like I'm James Bond I'm James Bond I can be James Bond Um, I think with Octopussy though I I think think the reason I remember that is because it was filmed in India and being of Indian heritage it was more of a thing like that was more of a moment watching it because it represented our people right it had like famous Bollywood actors in that film that you would never have seen on any other British television so it was like oh who are these guys like who's a seat guy with a turban you know who's this other guy like who are these people oh my god there's a lady in a sari wow yeah. Bond's kissing a lady in a sari whoa this yeah. is like what's going on here so uh, yeah so James Bond was like pretty big and then I guess later on uh, I used to watch a lot of uh, like I mentioned sports earlier but Football Italia yeah. uh, was like oh, it was my thing it's like my thing that got me really into football and watching James Richardson present for classy, sophisticated take on football. Yeah, so after Italian ninety. And, exactly, yeah. exactly. And like you know, you have got a guy there drinking espresso, and he used to cover the newspapers. A bit like we are doing now. Yeah, yeah. a bit like we. We're, 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 we're missing the ice cream. Yeah, but... we're missing the ice cream. And all that ice cream, I just, just love the fact that he used to sit there, start the paper review, go right. What's happened in the Gazette della Sport? 
Juventus have done this right, and then by the end of the pay per view, because of the cutaways to other matches, he would have he'd come back to the end and the ice cream was gone. And it was just really clever storytelling on TV. I found that he'd done a whole pay per view eating ice cream, and that was his thing every Saturday morning. And then on Sunday afternoons was the, the main serial match, you know, 2 p.m., Channel 4, and he, the four sign used to come up, and I still remember it. It's like, the four sign would move, and it was like, that looked like Lego and it's like crowd noise <sighs> and the ball used to hit the four sign and the four sign would just turn into the Italian flag and they go Wah! yeah and then and it the, looked a little bit like the um, Italian 90 mascot yes, didn't it, did. it? Yes, yes it did yes yeah. and that's what I thought and I, I, thought about that I haven't thought about that I just yeah. realised that now yeah it looks like Italian yeah. yeah and then the music would start <laughs> and no one knew what was being said all you heard was Italiano Calcio yeah and you thought it was like goal Lazio, which is a team, yes, it's that's not. A, ah, see, that's what I always thought. No, ah. it's not Gol Lazio. It's right. Gol which is like score an amazing goal. Right, so like a super goal. Yeah, yeah. Really? So it's like, oh, are they supporting Lazio every week? No, I not. genuinely thought it was Gol Lazio until this exact well. moment. I thought that as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a great because that's where actually. Gascoigne went, didn't he? That's where Gascoigne. So that's, I guess, that's why we all thought that exactly. And there's actually a great podcast where James Richardson explained the history of like you know, the production of it and the music yeah. and how they came up with it. So if anyone listens to that, you should go listen to that podcast as well. I'm going to check that out as well. Um, and what were the other sort of things that you remember watching that sort of shaped your young mind, your <laughs> mind? Well, funnily enough, today I'm wearing a T-shirt, which is uh, very close to my heart, which is Andre the Giant. Yes, one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Exactly. Is that fair? He was a good wrestler yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, was like, yeah. he was like one of the best, one of the very misunderstood, but one of the best. And... Um, we were talking earlier about that, that documentary. You've watched it. I haven't, but, I, but you have. But oh. I've got it queued up to watch. I hear it's because it's, it's an ESPN. It's incredible. One, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. It's probably one of the best um, ESPN docs that they've done. Yeah. When, when they follow a, a specific uh, figure in the sports industry. The other one being Muhammad Ali one. That's another great documentary. But yeah, Andre the Giant, the ESPN doc's amazing. So yeah, talking about Andre the Giant, wrestling. Like, wrestling for me growing up... Uh, was so influential and I'm not realised until probably the last few years how much it influenced the way I think or me in storytelling yeah um, so when you think of wrestling you think of like you know oiled up sweaty dudes with big big muscles and like you know string hanging off their biceps body slamming each other making grunting noises American Iron is much more bigger than that wrestling for me is like the beginning of what I'd say is like the art of storytelling on, on like in sports entertainment as they call it um, you know, it has so much influence now into boxing. It has influence now into the way managers do, like football managers do interviews on TV. Like you think Mourinho is a great interview after the match. Yeah, yeah. Doing that is like what in wrestling is called cutting a promo. So wrestlers are taught how to cut these promos to get their characters out. So wrestling was massive for me actually, and watching American wrestling was was really big. Um, and the thing is, because we didn't have Sky, I couldn't watch it every week, but. I was. I just remember that you know on the way in, I was thinking about oh, what's, what questions is Campbell going to ask me? And I just remember they're really like really nice thing. And I want to go check out this guy. It's still alive actually, and what he's doing. But the caretaker at my school, so I went to school in Northwest London in Harrow, and the caretaker at the school, really nice guy, Mr. Warren, and he used to wait at the gates while the kids went home. And one day we got talking, and he said to me, oh, you know, what do you like watching? Blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, wrestling. Oh yeah, I love wrestling. I'm like, oh my god, Mr. Warren likes wrestling. <laughs> So we start talking about wrestling, and you do you watch it? I said, well, I only watch it like you know, people. You know, I, I, I see things like every now and then, but not really because I don't have Sky. And he's like, well, you know, 
I can I can record it for you and give it to you. So Mr. Warren used to record it on you know on tape, VHS tape, and he used to like give it to us. And like, my dad, my dad used to collect it, and then we, I used to watch all the pay per views on tape like on the weekend. And Did Mr. you do that thing that kids do? We just like watch that tape over and oh over again. Oh my god! I think, I've watched, out. I think I've watched Royal Rumble '91 <laughs> or whatever it was like so many you times. You quote it. Yeah, I can or, quote yeah. it. I can do. Yeah. I could. I could probably do all the impressions and all the promos. You know, Hulk Hogan. Now let me tell you something, brother. <laughs> right? You know. Or the Ultimate Warrior. No one knew what the Ultimate Warrior was saying. None of it made sense. It was all about all about God, right? The Ultimaniacs, right? You say stuff like that. Or you had Macho Man Randy Savage. For me, one of the greatest wrestlers ever. You know, he'd come into um, oh, was it Land of Hope? Yeah, yeah, Land of Hope. That was his theme music coming in because he was the Macho Man Randy Savage, and he came with his wife Elizabeth. And then when he used to cut a promo. He'd be like, oh yeah, I'm the macho man Randy Savage, oh yeah. And he'd drink coffee, he'd hold an espresso in his hand. He'd be like, I didn't yeah, know that. I'm the cream <laughs> of the crop, yeah, a cup of coffee is a good time. There's great promos he used to do. So these are larger than life characters. So they, would, they, would they have been improvising that stuff or like writing that stuff or being given that stuff? Um, to what extent are they kind of crafting it themselves? Probably a bit of a bit of both. So some some wrestlers, I guess, like are taught this, and some of them have just created these characters themselves, and it represents something in their their real life. So like, you know, Hulk Hogan, you know, was this real American hero, and what they used to do is like in those days, because there was like you know the Gulf War was happening, the WWF, you know, they picked up a little bit on like the kind of xenophobia that was going on, right? Especially towards the Middle East. And you've got a golf on one side. So, hey, let's create a character. And so they had these two characters called Colonel Mustafa and General Adnan. And then they had this other one called Sergeant Slaughter, who's a famous wrestler. And he turned, right? So he turned from being like an American war general, that was his character, to mm. I'm a traitor and I'm going to help the Iraqis in this, right? So Hulk Hogan turns up with his American flag, we're an American hero. And when he's cutting a promo, that's what it's called, cutting a promo, I think he'd improvise in a way where it's like, okay, what are the things people were gonna like really get riled up about, right? What are the things they wanna you know? Are they gonna wanna hear? And then how do I throw in what I do? So he used to say things like, oh, "I'm an American badass" and all this kind of stuff. And you can't do this and freedom and things like that. And then he'd throw in his old stuff, which was like, "Take your vitamins and say your prayers. Hulkamania is gonna run wild, right?" And that so it's like, okay, here's Hulk Hogan. Here's a situation going on the other side of the world. Let's bring them all in together. And then you have the character of Hulk Hogan, right? So Macho Man, everything about him was to be macho. So he was the best. You say he's the best. He's the cream of the crop. Everything was like in some special rhyme. You know, he just used to, like all the documentaries I've watched about this guy, he was such an intense character that people just didn't know what he was going to say. So some of the stuff would not make sense at the beginning, but then there was a story by the end of it. And the cream of the crop one, like there's a whole promo where he talks about the cream rising to the top of coffee and he gets to the top, he gets to the top. And then what is he? He's the cream of the crop and that he represents him through cream and coffee. Like, are you nuts? As a kid, what the it hell should is have that been made? like Randy Barista sandwich. Oh, Randy Barista. That's great. That's that a, is a great one. That's, that's a rebrand. That's a rebrand yeah. right there. So yeah, these wrestlers used to, they had a lot of, um, they had a lot of help obviously, but some of them were just so naturally talented and like a lot of the best wrestlers maybe weren't the greatest in ring like in ring technicians, but they're great on the mic. And I wanna think of one, like for me, Brett the Hitman Hart was one of the greatest wrestlers, right? You know, he had that saying, the excellence of execution. The best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. That was him. But when he spoke on the mic, I wasn't enthused by him. But when he was in the ring, wow, like that that 
kid could do things. You know, so it's a bit of a mix. Hulk Hogan, personally, he was not very good in the ring. You knew what he was going to do. Three yeah. moves and he'd won. Very easy. He'd get beaten up for five minutes. Then he'd right. He'd basically Hulk up, as they called it, and he'd Hulk up, and then you'd hit him, and he'd block it, and then you'd hit him, and he'd block it, and then he'd point his finger at you, wave his finger. Then he'd punch you three times. The crowd is going one, two, three. Throw you against the ropes. Pull you back. Big leg drop. Goes to the side. Leg drop on top of you. One, two, three. One. So you knew what was coming, and the character like that doesn't evolve because you know what's coming. Whereas yeah. the other wrestlers who were good on the mic, you didn't really know what was gonna happen. They were good on the mic and they were good in the ring, so there was more to it. And someone like Macho Man was that. Like you didn't know what way he was gonna turn. He has so many different things to his character. So how many people would have been in sort of the, the stable back then in terms of, and would you have had feelings about all of them? So every yeah. time there was a matchup, as opposed to say watching football, you have your team, you support, and whoever they're playing, you just want them to beat them. But if yeah. those other teams are playing, don't really have a feeling about two teams they care about. Yeah. But if you care about all of those characters, yeah. so when those matchups would happen, would, in your could you almost like rank the wrestlers? So like if so and so is fighting this guy, I want this guy to win. Yeah, or, and, or or how's that going to go with that matchup? Well, and, like okay, so obviously it's like when you're a kid, you don't realize it's predetermined. You think everything's real, right? Um, but in I think in wrestling, like what happens with these characters, you start having an affinity to a certain character. And I think what happens is that character, the reason why you've got affinity with them is because they represent you. Yeah. Right? It's the same as like, maybe, I don't know, podcast, or maybe same as like, you know, somebody that you watch on the news, you might like one newscaster with another because you feel like they either represent you in a certain way or the way they speak connects with something with you, right? Wrestling is exactly the same. So the Hulk Hogan thing, you know, he came, he, he was massive at a time, big money spinner when there were two big things happening. There was like this bodybuilding element was going on in the state. And at the same time, you've got this Gulf War. So he plays into things that are happening around yeah. the world. And I really think wrestling is representative of so many things in the world. Like there's not a single thing that in the world that you can't describe through some wrestling analogy. And that's how I think wrestling is so, so clever. So it really depends like who the character is and what they're representing. And I think a really good one is, so in, in, in the late... Um, well, yeah, late uh, 90s, there was a guy, a really, really famous guy, called Stone Cold Steve Austin. Oh, yeah. Right? He's in films, didn't he? Like, he's done some films. Thing. He's yeah, done yeah. some films, right? So, the character of Stone Cold Steve Austin in the mid-90s, when wrestling started going through this site called the Attitude Era, which was like this kind of like very edgy, you know, you'd have like, you know, women wrestling in like literally no clothing, you know, strip tease going on, a lot of swearing, like very, very edgy, right? A lot of homophobia, you know, in terms of when people talk and they'd, yeah. say, they'd say things openly, like, you know, that you just wouldn't say. Racism as well, right? He came out about, he came out a time where the whole thing about his character was saying F you to the boss. And the boss in wrestling never gets involved. He's just a promoter. And what this guy did, Vince McMahon, who runs WWF, yes. WWE now, he involved himself in the storytelling and said, right, I'm going to take a step in. So he started doing things that you would not expect from a boxing promoter. And the whole idea of Stone Cold was this anti-boss, anti-establishment, I don't really care, like, I'm just going to get on with it. And the fans, a working class hero, the fans loved it. I remember when Stone Cold used to come in, right, the pop, so the pop is when the crowd cheers for someone, the pop in the crowd for Stone Cold, because what used to happen is the music, so the other thing is the music, I used to really get drawn into music as well, wrestling. So the music represents like the feeling of the wrestler. So Stone Cold is like, 
the glass breaks. Right. When you hear that, purpose. Glass is broken. Yeah. I've got purpose. The Ultimate Warrior was just running wild. It was just literally like running to the ring going mad. It's just like and he just was going beat everyone up. Chaos, right? So and the Macho Man was like grand, you know? I'm the best, right? And Hulk Hogan was just I am a real American. Fight for my rights, fight for my rights, right? Okay. So the characters are representations of something you it's like your belief system basically. And it was really hard. Like if you if two of your favourite wrestlers would wrestle, like I do remember so in 92, like my dad took me to Wembley Stadium and it was the first time the, the WWF then had created a pay-per-view outside the country. So the pay-per-view being such a big thing, $30 per head, right? He took me to SummerSlam 92 at Wembley, 90,000 people, right? He wow. sat there the whole time reading a newspaper, was not interested in what I was interested in. But I remember the pop when the Ultimate Warrior took on the Macho Man. This crowd was split because the Macho Man then... So there's two things in wrestling. There's a heel and there's a face. A face is someone who is popular with the crowd. And a heel is a bad guy, right? And there are a lot of people who manage to do both. So what, for some people, they're a face, but actually for some, they're a heel. And there's that, there's, that's a really clever way of yeah. like having a diverse like fan base, right? But this was two faces taking on each other, two of the greatest. And I remember the crowd was so split, right? And then the last match was like an amazing one, which was Bret Hart as I said, one of the best, he was a champion, versus the British Bulldog. So homegrown British Bulldog from Leeds against the best, Bret Hart. The crowd, again, was all for the Bulldog, but then when Bret Hart was on top in the match, it was all about Bret Hart. And the crowd got really, really emotional and really behind it. So, yeah, wrestling has that weird thing where, like, it transcends across different, like, audiences and it transcends across, like, different personalities and you know funny enough my dad 1992 sitting there with reading the paper the whole time big broadsheet had sitting there just bought me a hot dog and some food and occasionally he'd go down and get this like a scarf and a program was not interested that last match he got really into it and what 26 years later i still pay 10 pounds a month to my dad to watch this thing called the wwe network which is like netflix for wrestling oh right it's, it's all massive. just there like, it's, on it's, the it's the whole catalog for 50 years of wrestling across all the regions for rest it's got all the documentaries it's got all external programming everything he still watches that so that's the legacy you got to him in the end you yeah really want to i got to him in the end yeah it's such a great thing because it's it, it, it sounds like it steals a little bit from every bit of storytelling now there's there's a little bit of soap but there's also that kind of vocabulary of sports broadcasting it's interesting we say about managers there in a way because i remember football managers being not really having characters and we and we do have characters now as as football managers and do you think they are more charismatic or do you think they're aware that they sort of do need they've, they've built a bit of a brand as being you know whether it's you know Klopp or Mourinho where there's we know a bit more about them or we think we do yeah I think um I think you're right I think they are a bit more aware I mean you know I, I remember the manager's interview after matches would just be like so you know yeah Game two hey George, the, uh, hey, you know yeah. George Graham being a big Arsenal fan. Hey George, how'd that go? You know, and he come in, it's got a really strong Scottish accent. We're like, well, we yeah. did this wrong, we did this wrong, and this, that, and the other, and you know, but we'll be, we'll be okay. I think gone. Now, the questions, you know, it's really hard for a manager. I don't. There's a lot of managers I don't like because I don't like what they do on the pitch. Yeah. Um, you know, where an incident happened this week actually, where a manager like rolled up 
the fans. It was quite unnecessary, I thought. But I think the pressure's are really hard on them now because if they don't speak and if they don't talk, they get slated for like not being open enough or not, you know, not being inclusive or you know, they're just like this enigma. No one knows anything about them. And I think, like, I don't know if you watched that Amazon Prime doc, the Man, no, City, the Man one. City one. So, I mean, okay, whatever you think about it from a production point of view and like the fact that these cameras, it wasn't as fly on the wall as it's said to be because it's come from like Man yeah. City, right? It's a bloody good documentary though because you're seeing things about Guardiola. He's showing his insecurities. You know, there's moments in there where they're tuning up against Manchester United and they've won the league and it's half time and then they lose 3-2 they have to wait another week to win the league right that's in that documentary like half time so, guys yeah. we're tuning up yeah yeah. focus but we've beaten our rival we're about to win the title at our stadium against Manchester United you ready yeah, yeah. second half go out there second half 3-2 Man United at the Etihad and you get to see all that like that kind that. of unfolding yeah and I think now because of that this access so like essentially everybody has become like a content you know, creator, right? Even managers. So, you know, to a certain degree, like, you know, Arsenal just got a new manager. Arsene Wenger was on no social media to be found. Unai Emre, our new manager, has a Twitter account and he tweets all the time, like about Arsenal. Diego Simeone, he tweets all the time. Carlo Ancelotti, he tweets all the time. You know, Zidane, I follow him on Instagram, brilliant. I get to see where he travels around the world. He's like, you know, I'm yeah. in London now. Here, I'm at a post, but oh, this is a new thing. I'm, it's a new initiative I've launched. This is what I think about something. They don't get too political, obviously, right? But yeah, I think I think now it's got to a, it's a phase now for managers where they see maybe they have taken on these wrestling manager personas where they are actually sometimes bigger than the players. Yeah. So the, the players do the thing on the pitch, but the managers are things that like, are bringing it together. The ones you got to hear, the ones you understand why certain things have happened. So going back to that wrestling analogy, I really think like wrestlers for me, you know, some of the best. Um, things in wrestling were the managers right they brought all the colour to it some of the best co-commentators in wrestling were actually managers so they're called there's a colour commentator and the commentator and the colour commentator is the one that provides all the colour around it right so it doesn't describe everything in the What's ring happening but just describes feelings. the other feelings yeah, yeah. around it like you know oh my god the crowd are getting behind him now aren't they or you know yeah, he's not done that move in 20 years you know you know like, I remember when he did that move 20 years ago and he did this to this person so the, the, I think the managers in wrestling are quite similar to the managers of football nowadays you know you've got to have that about you great so thinking back to that time when you were watching wrestling was it starting to form your idea of what you wanted to be when you grew up yeah wrestler that's true yeah <laughs> no, definitely not um it did a little bit i think like because like wrestling had this impact to me about it was another place you know in america i'm watching this watching this thing on in like this, this other part of the world and like trying to understand about the world and just wrestling gives you an understanding about the world I think I start becoming curious a little bit about everything um, and I still remember like my dad like I, I you know sometimes I feel like he wasn't there because he was always working really hard and I realise now how hard this guy worked like. yeah. but on weekends sometimes he used to take us with him to his office like all of us four of us so me and my mum and my two sisters and my dad he used to drive down to Bond Street he used to park in his private car parking spot and he's an accountant so he used to you know do his work and then his trips to KFC after becoming, and I saw, you know, I love that. And but the thing was, like, I remember on the way, when we're driving in, like, from driving from Harrow to like Baker Street, I was like, oh, so what do you want to be? You grow up, and I'm like, oh, I'll be a tourist. Like, what? Be a tourist? What do you mean I'll be a tourist? I just want to, like, you know, have a bike and like live here, and then like 
go and see the world. Well, who's going to pay for that? Well, I don't know. I'm going to be a tourist. And I think, I didn't even know what that meant at the time. Did you think maybe it was a job? But maybe you could be paid for it? Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe yeah, if I worked yeah, for like, you yeah. know, TripAdvisor or something like that. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. But, <laughs> but essentially, yeah, I wanted to become a tourist. And um, I think that then kind of informed this thing about trying to understand the world and trying to understand what goes on in the world and trying to like maybe tell stories about the world which then goes into trying to tell stories about people in the world and understanding of it so i think me saying tourist when i'm like you know six or whatever is just me basically saying i want to know about the world yeah i don't know what that means but i want to know about the world i'm curious i've yeah. had a glimpse yeah but i want to exactly. know more i want exactly. to understand it exactly yeah yeah and then once obviously it becomes apparent that that, that that's not a job <laughs> yeah um and as you're kind of going through sort of school a bit um when do you start finding sort of subjects and things that you you really do care about so like at school i i really wanted to become a footballer and um and that was that influence of football italia like my italian football knowledge i'm i'm gonna sound very cocky here but it is amazing it is amazing right you know i think i can still roll off the Juventus team from 1995 that won the Champions League final. I do, I do, I do, but he's 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 already got that market covered. Um, I think being footballer, um, but to be honest, like being a young Asian kid from Northwest London, being footballer was just not going to happen. And you know, when I did play like for teams, Sunday league teams or like local teams, you know, I faced racial abuse. Like you know, I did. Like it wasn't very nice. Players from from players, players on my team. Yeah, yeah. I mean. I couldn't, I couldn't say directly from uh, managers, but I think like, you know, I felt like there were nuances there sometimes from managers, you know, it would be like, it's not like calling somebody like a packy to their face, but it's probably going to be something like, well, you can't do that because, you know, you're not very good at that. And that's because like, maybe you're better at maths or something like that. Yeah. And that kind of stuff hurts. But you don't realize as a kid how much it hurts. What you try to do is you try to try to be more with the in crowd because you feel like you're being like left out so you try to be less of what you are and more of like this thing that you're not because you don't want to stand out as a kid no it, and i think and that's it's a weird thing because that's when you're sort of most stupid it is it's that thing is yeah. it's like no matter what the difference is no, no one wants to be different no exactly no one wants to be different and um i think i just i, I just remember like my dad like as harsh as sometimes he was with me the reason he was doing that is because he wanted to me to be better he wanted me to like be the best I can be. And I think it's all linked to like his story of coming here in 1971 with my mum, 1972 then from Uganda, you know, as refugees being thrown out by Idi Amin and arriving here and being like, okay, look, we didn't have an education. We had a good life in Africa. Now we've come here, we've got to work even harder now to start all over again. So how old would your dad have been? About 23. Time? And just, yeah, and just have to start again. Start everything again. Start on your life. Yeah, just married my mum. They were like, oh, but then it's like, hey, Asians, hey, uh, anybody Jewish, we want you guys to leave. You know, you're called, you're economic terrorists in our country. We want you guys to leave. Uh, 90 days to leave. And there's a film, actually, The Last King of Scotland, yes. about Idi Amin, which my dad really likes, but I'm pretty sure him and the other 90,000 Asians that were thrown out will tell you there's so many stories that people haven't heard actually the real stuff that was going on yeah. that kind of I felt like that film slightly glorified him a little bit well it doesn't address things like that for sure yeah. which I mean I think it yeah it just kind of it just touches upon it and talks about this doctor mainly yeah. right and I think 
what the impact Idi Amin had on people in terms of just getting up one day and leaving, you know, it's tough. But, you know, my parents came here, they ended up at, in Wales in like a refugee camp for a bit. And like, you know, my mum still remembers like, you know, she arrived wearing a sari because, you know, she's from East Africa, wearing a sari, which actually is a thin piece of clothing. Yeah. It's so hot over there. Yeah. It's so hot. Wales, not so much. Yeah, you arrive, yeah. it's like, what? We need coats here? Are you yeah. kidding me? And people were so nice, like, you know, they were just great. And my mum and dad have got great stories about like how people were so warm to them and like, you know, helping them and saying like, look, these are, these are this is England, these are the places you can go. And like, you know, these are many different jobs you can start looking for, you know, and that relocation thing was tough for a lot of people. But my parents, like I realized like they are, I've never said this. So when they listen to this, they're probably going to be like, oh, you never told us this, but they're fighters. They really are fighters. And um, when I think about what they went through, and like you know, maybe I didn't show them as much appreciation as I should have. But I think that like they really try their best to get the best out of me. And I was kind of like a flop at school. Like I passed five GCSEs, right? I remember Dad saying to me, "Oh, you're never gonna go to university with five GCSEs." Like, what the hell are you doing? That was a big reality check for me. So, literally, I went did my A levels, AS levels then, and. Um, I, you know, I got a B in two C's, I think I remember, and I was really good at history. And my lecturer or whatever teacher there was like, you know, um, you should maybe think about doing like politics because like you've got a passion for it. So like, oh, and this is like nine eleven just happened, so we started getting more exposure to TV about things in the world because that was such a big event, such a like defining moment in the world for so many bad and good reasons, yeah. right? About about what's going on in the world that. I basically my curiosity like became bigger about things going on in the world and and I think that kind of led me to like I want to know about politics I want to know more about like international relations I want to know more about how countries negotiate I want to know more about how we live together in this big world that's got like billions of people and like there's just so much hate and divide but there's also so much hope right yeah. so you know I think that kind of made me go right I'll do policy sociology so I turn up to university at Aston and I go to university and um I remember like Aston is like one of the best business schools in Europe and everybody there who's like Asian is doing like a computer science course or business course and there's me turn up and I'm like doing politics so when people say oh where did, what does university go to? Aston oh great so what are you doing computer science or uh, business economic finance nah I'm doing politics sociology what? do they even do that course? yeah they do do that course why are you doing that? why are you doing that? wait I remember actually here's an anecdote I remember my dad's gonna hate me sharing this story my dad's friend, we went round to his house. I don't know what, what it was for. I think, I think actually it was for Diwali. By the way, it's Diwali this week, guys. It is. Yes. It is. We've, we've, we've had a good Diwali week in the office, actually. Good. Yeah. Lots of sweets, yeah? Yeah, we had, uh, I want to say Kulpi. Is yeah, that right? yeah, wow. Pistachio Kulpi. Oh. Yeah, if Mindy's listening to this, Mindy bought a great Diwali week. They got Mindy. Um, so Mindy, right? Yeah, she's a good <laughs> person. So I remember that Diwali went to this guy's house and... Um, he was like, oh, so what are you doing at university? I was like, oh, politics, sociology. Oh, why do you do that? There's no money in that. And my dad knew I would, like, lose it. Yeah. But what was really clever was that he let me be the adult and continue the conversation. I said, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing politics. Sociology. Yeah, but you should do IT. There's no money in uh, politics, sociology. What are you doing? There's no money in it. Like, you know, what, what kind of job would you do? I was like, well, I'll become a diplomat. Diplomat? Oh, diplomat. He wants to become a diplomat. My dad didn't say anything. He just let it continue. And then I remember him saying, like, yeah, no, look, that's his interest. He wants to do it. We should let kids, like, yeah. be interested. You know what? Fair play to my dad there because yeah. 
to be honest, like five years ago, I wasn't even going to university. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I was in no state to go. Like, I was just playing football and playing like Nintendo sixty four and like smashing everybody with Mario Kart and Goldeneye. I wasn't doing anything else but that. And to then suddenly have like an interest in something and suddenly like have a passion for it. Yeah. And start writing, you know, bloody dissertations on like Tony Blair's foreign policy was like a big wake up call for me. So I think it was like there I kind of thought, hmm, is could I could I go into politics or could I go into something like diplomacy? And I um you know, from going from like passing five G Cs to getting a B and two Cs on one percent off the first. And I remember I'm still upset I'm one percent off the first. Like I should have <laughs> got that first. But I got a first in my dissertation and my lecturer said to me, Wow, like incredible four years through or yeah, it was four years because I did a placement year as well. Incredible four years you've had, like what a turnaround. I remember like you started as a two two and now like you're boarding, yeah. like this is really good. You should do a masters. I'm like, what? Masters? What? He's like, Yeah, you should do a masters. So I applied to do a masters and I still remember I applied for like three places like Aston where I was. Queen Mary and King's College. Couldn't believe the letter came from King's College London. I got in. I remember my dad. I opened a letter. My dad was ironing his shirt upstairs. It was like a morning. He he normally goes. He normally goes to work like after nine thirty because he works yeah. such long hours and he can be you know self-employed. He can go when he wants. But we opened the letter and I was like, oh my god, dad, guess what? He's like, what? I'm like, it's King's. He's like, no. I was like, yeah. He goes, oh my god, okay, okay. So this is great. You're doing a master's then? I was like, yeah. yeah. He's like, all right, yeah, I'll support this. Yeah, of course I'll support this, right? So I ended up being a master's. And must have been really proud. Because that's a relatively it, short period of time, in a way, to find something that you're passionate about and let yeah, it kind of take you. I think so. That. Like, I hope he was proud. Yeah. I think, I think he was proud. I think he was proud. Like, I, I, I think if, you, if you've, like, gone for a really horrific thing in your life and you've come here, you know, starting again like my mum and dad did, you know, uh, trying to find your feet, they worked, like, six, seven jobs... You know, like yeah. mom and dad, maybe she's just my mom and dad. They've got so many great stories about like trying to buy furniture and like it was like the set price and you know they wouldn't budge on the price and then like, you know, my mum my dad would like leave a furniture shop and my mum go back and go, Look, please, we like literally just got here. We really want furniture. Is it for thirty five percent, not forty P and then guy'd be like, Yeah, I'll do it for thirty five and then my mum yeah. would be like, Yes, yes, like little victory. Yeah, teamwork. Teamwork, we did <laughs> yeah. it, right? We managed to buy our first sofa set, right? You know, like stuff like that. When you hear those stories and you realise like right now we've got all this choice in the world and like just yeah. you know, it's like incredible, like what they went through and what they've given me to be where I am now, like it's incredible. So like yeah, I guess I guess he was proud because he never got to go to university, he never got to finish his GCSEs. But isn't it, but he's still a like really intelligent man. It's just yeah. you know, he just never got to finish his education. So I kind of feel like sometimes he lives through me because it's like, Oh yeah, he went to university, like I'm he did it like yeah. it's, it's me but he did it you know it's one of those ones so we're not meeting at the UN we're meeting at the BBC so obviously <laughs> something changed for you in terms yeah. of thinking about what your career path was yeah it did I mean um, so I um, I um, I finished my masters and it was like I was doing my dissertation and my um, my dissertation head the guy that was like marking my dissertation it was on Iran and whether it could become a superpower without nuclear weapons and this was at like, the height of like the Iran deal yeah. with the EU plus five and uh, it was really weird because he was like, oh, you don't like your academic writings like a journalist. And then that kind of like, again, hit me, you know, like, oh, I'm curious and I want to tell stories. I'm obviously not a diplomat, but maybe I'm like, I like telling people stories and maybe journalism is the thing I should be doing. So 
I kind of finished my masters and then I, you know, I was looking after my granddad for a bit and he was getting very ill and he was like 93, but he was like one of the most knowledgeable people on earth. Like he used to read like five, six newspapers a day, right? And tell me what's going on and tell me everything. And he just liked seeing every side of the coin. A really like informed man. He used to read a lot of books and tell me a lot of stories about India. And he left India when he was like 17 and moved to East Africa, right? So he used to tell me like things like how he, you know, how he never got a chance to live there properly because he left so early. And I had never gone to India because my grandma used to threaten me when I was naughty. She's like, if you're bad, I'm gonna send you to India. And it's like, like it was a threat, like like it was this place, like, like it was the worst place on earth. It sounded like hell on earth, right? And do you think they meant to plant that idea in your head? It was a kind of a, um, an accident I in a way. I yeah, yeah, I don't know because I in in when my dad went to India like in the early nineties and he recorded his whole journey on one of those old cameras and then like we connected up to the TV yeah. and he showed us Delhi and I looked at it and Mum was like I'm not going there and my dad's like no but you should see it and we were watching it he's in a rickshaw like recording everything and there was like a lot of dust there was a lot of poverty and as a kid. You're like, why would I go there when I've got the life I lead, right? Like, what the hell was that all about? And that became quite a moment for me. So then my grandma would have been like, you know, yeah, if you're bad, I'm going to send you and you could live with, like, family members you don't know. And, like, yeah, you're very naughty. And I'm like, what? Really? So maybe it was punishment. But I got over that, and I made a vow to my granddad that I'd go there. So when he passed away, about five, six months later, I had a chat with my parents, and I was living with them now because I'd just come back from, like, you know, five, six years out at university and masters and stuff. And they're like, oh, yeah, why don't you go then? So I bought an open ticket and I went. And I didn't come back for three years and ended up working out there. And that is literally what started it all off. I just was like, okay, bye. Got a ticket, left. And what, I mean, obviously there, there was a promise to your granddad, but yeah. what what did you, what were you expecting from, from, that, from that trip when you got on that plane? Obviously you knew you were gonna try and work out there and, and sort of. So what I was expecting was Someone told me before I left, and I can't remember who asked me who told me this, but they said either you're going to come back in two weeks because you hate it, or you're never going to come back because you love it. And apparently, like India has this thing for people where it's two weeks and it's enough, and it's like I'm back now. I can't deal with organised chaos, right? Or you love it and you just never want to come back. Luckily, I was on love and never come back. Um, The curious nature of me understanding things, understanding the world, understanding people, basically made me stay and. The thing is, I didn't go to a place of it. So India's got like so many languages, right? Like thousands. I could speak like three of them, but I didn't go to a place where the la- my language I could speak is spoken. I went to the south of India, Bangalore, where they speak completely different languages. And this this place I went to didn't understand anything I was speaking about. So English was like the main, basically main language, right? But I learned so much about how diverse India. So India for me is like, are like it's like it's like mini countries within a country yeah. because. They're all speaking different languages and different belief systems all over the place, different ways of doing it. Like Diwali in the north is completely different to Diwali in the south. Completely different, right? This is why, like, you know, it's it's important when there's like festival, you understand why different festivals happen in different parts of India. They're all representing different things. So India for me, like, I was so curious about all these little things. And the life I was leading, like, you know, I stayed there, I got a job out there within a week working for a couple's lifestyle magazine. Oh my God, biggest challenge of my life, I guess, you know, in India. Yeah, and was that your sort of first proper job in a way? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah I guess yeah. you could say that. Yeah. Like, I'd done like, I'd done like, you know, a bit of like, you know, the summer holidays, I've worked in family businesses and I've yeah. done like things like, you know, working in local solicitors as like a office 
admin that was fun but that was like probably my first like real stab at like writing and being a journalist and um, it was amazing I started as a features writer and then I became a features editor there so I started writing the whole team and that was amazing amazing experience and you learn so many different things about like being in a startup environment as well with young Indians who like are just really trying to like make it this is like the office was in the middle of a, you know like a housing area a housing plot and the guy had the office like in his in his like literally in his living room and then his main office was like in like next to the bathroom and it was it was hilarious but it was it was so fascinating like really opened my eyes up to like a lot of things about not only about india but about myself as well like what i could achieve or yeah. you know i think i i learned so many things about myself that i wanted to improve on as well but learning how to live alone yeah and i guess going out there on your own and just sort of making a life yeah scratch. yeah making life from scratch you know and like you know if you don't know the language how do you communicate yeah you know like learning things like that like then becoming friends with like different people like from the person that like you know the ritual other so I used to have the same ritual driver every morning take me to work because after about five six times hailing a ritual down he just noticed that I was going to the same place yeah so he'd come every morning to the same corner and then we'd have like a like sometimes I didn't even pay him because we'd be like I'll just get to the end of the month just that that was became a thing my ritual driver every morning he'd be there at 8 15 ready for me to be picked up right so like it was like things like that you start like yeah right and then yeah it was, it was it was fascinating really fascinating i mean obviously it's a different experience and obviously very very different reasons but that that kind of thing did it sort of give you an insight into what maybe your parents went through obviously very different circumstances obviously you went to india by choice but but that idea of kind of going right i'm, I'm here and i'm just Sort of starting yeah well. i guess so i guess so because like the one i i chose to live in like very humble surroundings like what i was earning i could have lived somewhere better and i realized that when my dad came he's like what the heck where the hell are you living like i didn't realize at the time where i lived was basically above like and what you'd probably call like an upper class shanty stroke like what some people might describe as like a very like posh slum i didn't yeah. realize that though like i just lived there and i knew everybody and i yeah. talked to them and i remember it was so funny because it was like a really hindu area like sneaking in beef and the, and the, and the landlord would be like would you like beef and i was like yeah of course i'll hand you beef and like, just put it in two bags and it's like a big thing in india like yeah beef, right but i guess maybe i got away with it because I was from the UK, I looked different, I walked different, maybe I didn't understand what was going on around me, so I was like, oh, so I see you that to yeah. my advantage, obviously. It's like, oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. oh, how many bottles of beer have you got in your bag? Just one. Oh, okay. There's also a bottle of whiskey in my rucksack. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like, not that it was a bad thing, but it was just things like that, like, you know, you start understanding things about the world. And I guess my parents went through that as well, yeah. in their own way, you know, like trying to understand like things about different cultures and not what's right and wrong, but what's like more accepted and not accepted and the nuances are really important i think like and, and respecting i think yeah. respecting where you are is so important so you know the fact that landlord had that chat with me is like you know i eat beef as well but i eat outside but people know i eat beef is fine but i eat outside so bring it home and yeah you know if you're gonna bring it home like just make sure no one sees you bring it home because it's one person that gets it it's like okay yeah. that's really cool thanks for having that chat with me i didn't bring it back after that yeah it's that kind of sensitivity yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Sensitive. i didn't want to just yeah. rile up like a, some sort of mob attacking me with beef you know what i mean but yeah. um yeah so, so what did you do when you came home? So I came home. Later. Yeah, so my sister was getting married. So I came back and I kind of felt like it was all matched up. I felt like it was like right to come home as well. Um, 
I probably could have stayed there an extra year, but I just felt like there was a moment now to come home, three years out, I was missing my friends, some of them had come to see me, and I was realizing how much I missed them. So I came back and um, I chilled for a bit, and then I got a job working for the DMGC group, Daily Mail group, and it was like in their local community websites, which was like local people, websites with this is range. And I was doing a lot of web content work for them, it wasn't very good pay, but you know, it was like an internship at the beginning and I kind of just stayed on and I met a few people there and there was no future there for me really because I was like really working too hard and doing a really good job for extremely bad pay. Yeah. It wasn't sustainable for me. Like I remember my there was trip, no development plan, I'm assuming. They were no. just like, we'll just churn through. Yeah, 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 yeah. Churn, absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. churn. But the thing, yeah. the, the irony is with churn, even though you start churning through, you identify people that you can get more work to if you yes. trust them, right? I was one of those people, but I never saw an increase in my pay packet, and the only reason for me to stay, it was a bit weird. So, and every time I asked, it was just like, yeah, yeah, no, we'll look into it. I was like, oh, this is not, this is not really working. I think my, I do remember my salary being so bad that my travel was costing so much that like, it was just ridiculous. And actually that's where I learned with my luncheon. So I, to this day, I bring in three bits of Tupperware a day. I cook every night. Sundays I cook like five, I cook like five, I meal prep like anything. That time, not having no money, has taught me how to meal prep because I meal prep all the time. I don't eat my lunch out anywhere. Yeah. So I bring it in all the time. So actually, maybe it was a good thing about not having money there because you learn how to meal prep at home. It's good. And you get a bit more time at work for better for work. Yeah, 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 yeah. You no, know, but you can use your lunch hours for other things, but we'll talk a bit about yeah. that later. Um, so yeah, and then from there, like I, uh, I met somebody there. Um, who was starting up his own business? He was leaving, and he was, he was thinking about his own business. And it was like the height of UGC, you know, so user-generated content and citizen journalism. And he created his own website for it, and he wanted somebody to like be the editor for it. So he said, "Hey, I can pay you more money. I'm a startup, and I've got some like seed funding. Come along for the ride." And I was like, "Why not? Why the f not? Yeah. What have I got to lose by joining this guy and trying this thing out?" And Nothing. how many of you were there to start with? Five of us. Five of us in an office in Croydon. So I used to travel, so I was living at home again. Travel right across London. Yeah, so yeah. North West London. So I used to get on that pinner where my dad lived, get on the Met Line, go all the way to Finchley Road, swap over, get the Jubilee Line to London Bridge. London Bridge, absolute nightmare station. Go up the stairs, get the old ground to Croydon, East Croydon, right? Oh my God. I used to come home, like, because in those days, like, going to the gym for me would either be before work or after. So I tried going after, and I used to, like, there was no point in going to the gym near me. I used to go in these Croydon yeah. or in like London Bridge and just get home like 10 at night. And then it was like, oh, it's not sustainable, is it? But I was promised, oh, we're moving soon. We actually did. We yeah. moved to London Bridge, which was great. And we got really, we got more seed funding um, from a really, really good seed funder named um, Mike, Mark Pearson. Mark Pearson, I think, who is now, I think it's myvouchercode.co.uk. Oh, yeah. Uh, really good guy and like he gave us funding and office space and that was amazing because we met all these other people so uh, yeah and that really kicked off and it was the height of UGC and then London riots happened and you know we had news organisations really relying on our content which was great and you know through that you start meeting other people in the industry like you start building out your profile a bit like because people are like oh that's that's that guy from you know from that news organisation I know him I know who that person is and start doing a few panels just like inviting you along like Ooh, who's this new tech startup? It's yeah. like, ooh, come along to this panel. And then through that, you start meeting people. And, you know, I think it's really important, like, when you're working for a startup, not to get stuck in the cool, I'm this hipster on a startup thing. I think yeah. you have to, like, really, really push your profile out to more traditional places because the startups I think get bought up 
yeah. or it's going to become this tech giant. But you still need to know what's going on in the world, right? Yeah. To keep in touch with And people. chances are you're doing something there that perhaps the, the bigger institutions aren't doing yet because they can't move that nimbly. So yeah. Yeah. especially something like you generate content, you'll yeah. probably be ahead of the curve even though you're relatively small. Yeah, and I think when you're small and you're nimble, you, you, like, you can fail quicker, but you can learn quicker. Yeah. Because someone at the BBC, if you, if you, and I, look, I don't mind, I'm not scared of failure. Like, I'm really not scared of it. Like, yeah. there's a famous quote in a Bollywood film, I forgot the name of the film, but the dad says to the son, right, I remember it, it's Anupam Kher, who's a famous actor, and this is the Shark Khan, who's another famous actor. He goes, his, his son comes in and he's like failed all of his exams, right? And he's like some like this middle class, upper middle class kid from Delhi, and he's like failed everything. And his dad's like, listen, son. And he's like, oh god, he's gonna tell him off, right? The dad telling his son off. And actually, he says, you know, don't fear failure because you'll never fear failure again. That has stuck with me forever. It's like, okay, do you know what? It's acceptable to fail. Yeah. It's okay. Like, so being a startup, you can fail really quickly and then learn from it, get on with it. But I think when you're in a big organization it's harder because there are other things at play so when you do fail at something you've got to let this person know and then that person and then this thing and then the, and, the, and what happens is some of them don't see it as failure they want to continue and not learn from it quickly they want to carry on working at it, which is great but when you know something's not working change it right change it and adapt it but the big organization is harder because there are so many stakeholders at play so i guess being a startup is cool like that you can just like move nimbly you can develop those muscles and get a sense of what yeah, it feels like yeah absolutely absolutely and it's <clears> probably <throat> something that people who are listening to this might might wonder is how how do you get into the bbc so you, know? you made a really good point like 30 seconds ago like you know it's really important to know what other broadcasters are doing maybe they're not as like nimble and they're not as quick at moving along um so through that profile building of myself like i just I was getting followed quite a bit by a number of journalists, right? And one of them was a guy that was a an assistant editor at the UGC hub for the social media team in the BBC newsroom. And I'd left the organisation that I was working for. I was freelancing, you know, they ran out of funding, so I was looking for new things. And I basically just dropped him a DM on Twitter. Slid into his DMs, as they say, and it was like, hey, can we meet up for a coffee? Um, I uh, just want to know what you're up to and then like what the BBC is up to and you know just want to have a chat and I'm freelancing at the moment just not sure if there's any opportunities no worries if not hey sure come along was the reply come for coffee come for BBC right so I walked through that door so what I'm describing now podcast listeners is the main door of the BBC when you walk in there's like lots of security and you go through the security you know you, you bust through after checking your bag and all that and then you go through and there's a big glass and that glass overlooks that newsroom you see on TV. And I remember like being taken there and I looked over and I just got very emotional. I didn't, not, not on my face, yeah. but I got very emotional because for me, the BBC was that thing that kept me going in India. When I was living alone, even though I loved learning all these things about living alone and you know, being by myself and learning things about myself, the World Service was always on. So when I looked over that newsroom and I saw this big newsroom, people running around, things happening. I was just like, oh my God, this place is so cool. And he basically was showing me, his name is Trisha Barra, big name check for this guy, amazing person, amazing, amazing person. He showed me like what was going on in the newsroom. So, okay, so this, these people are doing like world news and these people here are like, that's my team, they're verifying stuff from social media. This team in the middle is like sending out people, that's news gathering operations. Those people at the back, they're like presenters, they're getting ready for their like their next hit on the news channel. You know, 
this person here is in charge of kit, emergency kit, you know, this person here is like doing this. It's like, wow, this is ridiculous. Did it all click for you as well? Were you like, not like, I'm home, but was it like, yeah, like I, even though you've come from a different environment, you're like, yeah, I can, I see how all this works. Or... It, 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 it kind of did, but I was also like, oh, so scared. Yeah. Because this is the first time I'd walked into like, I mean, I'd gone to like other buildings for talks and chats and stuff, but looking at what was going on here and all these like, you know, every desk having two screens and like people running around and I was like, oh my God. And podcast is actually looking over it right now. Like, yeah. it's it's a beast. It's got no lights. and No windows. No windows. And I worked, it's called the news pit. It's called the pit. <laughs> it's horrible, right? Yeah. When you look at it from above, it's a beautiful piece of art in the news industry because yeah. what it is essentially where the magic happens it's where you what you're what you're, what's going on down there is like all this journalism coming together and actually it seeps through the building so actually where we sit on the fourth floor is news and current affairs down there is like the newsroom so there are things happening all over the building so this place just became like this i don't know it's like this magical moment like coming in and seeing it and like i remember taking a picture and there's a sign there that says no pictures <laughs> no photography no flash photography yada 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 yeah, did I care? I said my phone, I took a picture. I took a picture. He's like, just, just wait to scrutinize the turn. So scrutinize the turn, but like, taking pictures of the front center because I was like, look, I might not come back here. Yeah. Now I've been coming back every day for the last yeah years. I still, I still, I still take pictures by the way. Like, well, know. how do you make that happen? You know, for, for, how do you, how do you to basically? I mean, obviously, it was a bit primed because you were a bit known. But for anyone thinking, how do you turn a coffee into a career? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a big line. question. But yeah, what a line! How do you turn a coffee into a career? Um. So what I did was like I worked two days for free. So what I had this coffee with him and he said, look, I can't offer you anything. But I want you to come and sit in the newsroom and just like shadow. Can you do that? And look, not everyone has that opportunity to just shadow. Not everybody can afford to spend two days doing nothing, right? Yeah. You know, we've all got to make money. We've all got to eat bread. It's like important. Yeah. But luckily I was in a position where I could say, yes, I could do this for two days. And what I did with those two days was I shadowed. I kept quiet. I was learning. I was a new kid on the block. I didn't really say anything. I asked lots of people. I didn't say anything like, here are my big ideas like, yeah. check this out I asked how do you do this I asked yeah. everything and then I used my lunch breaks and my breaks mini breaks in there to meet people so what True Shot did was he gave me a list of people to meet to see if anything else was going around but I impressed his boss so much downstairs that he took me aside and said look I really like you I don't have anything concrete to offer you but can I call you in every now and then for like a paid freelancership like the special things happen soon I think we could use your skills it was a bit of like a Liam Neeson thing like I've got some special skills right <laughs> it was one of those situations so I said okay yeah what, what kind of thing so well, you know, we've got like elections coming up I need extra pair of hands it's really important you know I need people to run like social media live pages you seem to be able to pick up like when something's like buzzing and trending online about a situation like I want that knowledge to come in here and I want those tools to be used right so I did it three or four times and that's when I started getting on their agenda like more like oh well Raving can do that yeah oh Raving can do that like can't he What's that for? Oh, but Raving can probably do that one. I was like, oh, yeah, Raving can do everything. I probably couldn't do it. I yeah. said, yeah, yeah, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. Which is really scary and a risk. But I feel like saying yes, right, and then just like charging in and trying your best to do it. Look, if you fuck it up, you fuck it up. How do you know you're going to fuck it up if you try it? Yeah. So I think there's a lot, like, I got over that confidence thing that I might have had, like, when I was, like, 12 or 13. Like, I'm not doing this because I can't do it. I just yeah. like, fuck it, I'm going to do it, right? Yeah. So I went in there, did that. And through that, I met people. And one of the people I met is the boss I've been with ever since. And I met him for a cup of coffee. And then he was like, why don't you come in for a week and work on this program I've got called Beauty Trending, which is one of the best 
investigative journalism strands of the BBC still running. It's amazing. The team just sitting there behind me. They are great. Like I worked on that at the beginning when it was formed, and like because I was coming out with all these wacky suggestions for stories, they're like, "Where are you getting all this stuff from?" And I was like, "I'm just seeing it. Like I just I live in this world. Like I've been living in digital journalism for like the last two three years." I'm immersed in it and I see it and I've built up sources around it and I just understand it. Okay. I can't not think anything now. Oh, here we go again. But what we all do, we want to like bring you into special projects, but there's also a job being advertised. It probably isn't going to go external. It's going to be internally advertised, right? But if we can't find somebody internally, and yes, there are very strong candidates internally, we'll let you know if it goes external, then you can apply. Guess what? It went external. So I applied. It was a 12 month job and they only gave me three. And I was like, what? Why is that then? I remember the conversation with my boss. He's like, well, look, we don't know what the job's going to be about yet. Like, we're still unsure about it and we're not sure like we should be giving 12 months on it. So, can we give you three months at the beginning? And look, to be honest, I just wanted to get into the building. Yeah. I said yes straight away. I said, three month contract, BBC, done, I'll do it. Yeah. Took it. Took it on straight away. Did not care one bit, right? Next thing you know, I'm in there two weeks and extend it by nine months. And I'm like, okay then, yeah. I am staying here now for nine months. Okay. Do you think a bit of that was they said like, oh, we're not entirely sure what it is yet. Were you in those two weeks able to give them a sense of what it could be for then some of those? I mean, them maybe, or? maybe, yeah, maybe. I mean, like um, potentially. I think like, I remember like the person extended it. Was just like, how long are you here for? Like, they pulled me aside. It was like another editor. And I was like, oh, you know, three months. What? That's stupid, isn't it? you want to stay right I was like well I do but I don't know how this place works like it just seems like you know it's really hard to get jobs in there's cuts here all the time I don't know what to do no 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 this is silly like I've heard that you're doing really great things here so what's the point of like three months it's really silly and I was like yeah it doesn't make sense does it obviously I was like yeah it doesn't yeah, make sense well, of course yeah okay well let's just extend it again so they extended it and then I used I, like, I think it's really important when you're in a job don't rest on your laurels like already I was thinking about what's the next thing if they yeah. cut me off after nine months what am I doing next? Yeah. So within the first six months, I carried on those lunch meetings because I wanted to know what's going on. Within six months, I think I met 30, 40 people. 10 of them were the most powerful heads in digital, not only in the BBC, but in journalism, right? And by meeting them and then basically going to meetings I shouldn't have been going to, so inviting myself to like staff sessions that didn't involve me, so saying, can I just pop along and know how this works? Yeah, well, you're a really nice, likable guy. Of course, you can come in there. I just sat in the back and listened in on what was going on, worked things out. And then when I did want to chime up about something, I said something privately to the person. I said, Look, I think a guy listens on. Oh, that's a great idea. Do you want to come and help us do a bit of that? Yeah. Well, I can't. I've got this job going on. Okay, well, when does that end? Let us know and we'll work something out. So, the next thing you know, you started building up options for yourself. And I kind of used that to my advantage to like, I said to my boss, Look, my, my contract's coming up. I'm getting these horrible emails from HR telling me, you know, that it was like, you're, you're about to leave the BBC. You've done your nine months. We're going to end this contract. Please hand your pass back in. IT account will be disabled on the 21st of whatever, April. What is going on? Don't worry about it. You're going to get extended. You're doing a great job. Yeah, well, you know. What will the emails say? What the emails say. And those emails are really like, you know, they just stop sending them. They're horrible emails. They really are horrible emails. And I remember like, because of those emails, it made me think I'm actually got out of here. Yeah. Do you think maybe one time one guy it was in his contract and he just tried to come in again on the Monday and pretend like nothing had happened and they're like, because that one guy. Yeah. Definitely happened. 100% it's happened. Um, I think so. Yeah. And I think like those emails just sent such a bad signal. 
Yeah. Um, and I know it's really hard for people in HR, but they just send a really bad signal. So, like, that actually spurred me on to, to speak to more people and find out what was going on around the building. And I used that. I said, look, if I'm not going to be extended, like, I've got this gig offered upstairs. What gig? This gig. No, 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 you're being extended. Well, we better sort it out then because yeah. I've got lots of work to do there, but they want me to do this other thing. I need to know what's going on, you know? I've got to put food in the same week. You've got to let me know, right? I've got rent to pay and shit. Yeah. Extend it again. And then finally, that thing came out, which was a staff job. The hardest thing to get ever in this building. Yeah. And there was a need for it because I'd created a position for myself and I created a role that was needed across the BBC, which is like running audience engagement and innovation, right? Um, in current affairs. And it was like, okay, yeah, actually, do you know what? There's a role for this. So we're going to make a staff job and we're going to make it a senior position to line manage people. And I was like, oh, okay. Because you should definitely apply for this. But there are loads of other people that can apply who are also very, very good. I applied. I did really well. My boss still laughs at me about my interviews because I always come in with like lots of strategy papers and look, if you're not going to listen to me, I'm leaving this paper with you. This has got the strategy of it. This yeah. is what we should be doing. Like, read it. It's very serious. Um, and uh, I got that job and I got the staff job. The thing I wanted. And it, you know, at the time, it wasn't about being how much I was being paid. Like, you know, it wasn't about like, it wasn't about anything else, but just making sure I had stability. Yeah. And getting a staff job in the BBC was like the thing I wanted. I was trying so hard. I was finding other places that I could get it. And I didn't. I, didn't, I just stayed where I was and I worked my ass to do it. And I, yeah, I got the staff job and I started line managing people. So, you know, within like 18 months, I've gone from coming in as this like slightly work shy in terms of, not work shy in terms of my hustle, but like work shy. Just shy in terms of just... Should I be saying what I think kind of yeah. thing to, oh my God, you're now line managing people. Hey, Ravin, um, can you write three job descriptions up? We're going to give you three people. What? You're now recruiting. What? You're now interviewing people. What? Like, what's happened here? Very serious. Yeah, it's got... Yeah. yeah, and then he gets like yeah. an admin and it's like, oh God. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how do stories come together here for you like how do you how do you run things how do you bring these great stories in and then how do you decide <laughs> how to tell them so um if we went back a bit like so so news and current affairs has like historically been a thing geared towards television and radio and online the thing is there is that word beginning with d which is digital and the way people are now consuming content you know i'd have to say it, it's so different you know, Reed Hastings says his biggest competitor is sleep for Netflix, right? Yeah. You know, I think I think news. I think the biggest competitor for news is is not just another news organisation. It's time, because like, do you have time to read the news whilst sitting on Twitter, whilst reading a book, whilst watching Netflix, whilst yeah. cooking dinner, whilst walking the dog, whilst all these other things, right? So, what we did was we decided to create something that could fit into people's worlds and be something they could regularly go to and, and give them an understanding of the world in a way that they would understand and especially focused at youth audiences and news and um, so we created this department which was like a mismatch of I say mismatch because it wasn't at the beginning but a mismatch of like text and video and pictures and audio we brought it together to kind of formulate a way of storytelling across different platforms and different genres and we're doing that now and we're doing that and we've, we've, we've basically like gone out to try and get these audiences that wouldn't normally watch news they wouldn't tune into like the 10 o'clock news um, you know, 
I'm not going to tune into the 10 o'clock news because it's at 10 o'clock and I've got other stuff to do, right? Okay. So how do we give them stuff that can still inform, educate, and entertain? Because that's the BBC's motto. But the thing I want to add in there is engage. Yeah. So actually, the motto of the BBC should be inform, educate, entertain, engage. And engage is that two-way conversation that sometimes broadcasters find hard to do with audiences. And the audiences pay for us. So what we've done is we've created like a current affairs strand using digital platforms, which essentially gives them an understanding of different things going on in the world with relatable characters. So, you know, the other thing like I've been really big on is a recruitment drive of bringing people in that I know can tell the stories to the communities they live in. Because if we're not reaching those communities in the first place, how, do we, how are we going to do it? You okay. bring the people from those communities, right? And then you make them the future of journalism. They are the future of journalism. And that's why, like, you know, the team you're seeing behind me, like, you can just look at it now. Tell me another, I mean, it's not just been saying it's Friday. A lot of people are out about shooting and stuff. But you won't find another place as diverse as this. You really wouldn't. Because, you know, we're using the right schemes. We're bringing in the right, so, you know, TV festival screen. No, look, do you know who that is on your right hand side right there? Who's that? That's Brandon. That's Brandon. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 Brandon, alumnus of the network. Right. Do you know yeah. what Bra- Joe Brandon got this this week? No, this, we never find out this stuff. This is great. I didn't know this. This is actually so, news. Yeah. Go talk to Brandon. Brandon is now, Brandon came in as our runner. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Brandon's now on his computer dancing and singing because that's what he does. He is now one of our lead pitch editors. That's amazing. Brandon works This it. is not planned, by the way. This, this is not planned. This feels like a publicity that's right. He's got yeah. a gig this week working for us. So he works on our Instagram channel now. He goes out and he shoots. He takes lots of photos. He deals with all our thumbnails. That's someone that's come through your, through your network, right? Yeah. There's several people here that have come from like Mama Youth Scheme or have yeah. come through like the Extend in News Scheme, the Disability Scheme for BBC News. So these people are out there, yeah. right? And it's about getting those people. And when you get the right people, you start telling the right stories to the right audiences. So when it comes to a pitch, the kind of three things we ask, they're not necessarily random, what is pitch? Like, what, well, what is it? What's the story, right? You have to be able to say it in a way that you can tell a friend down the pub. And I think it's really, really important. I, actually, it's made me think now. I just finished watching um, Save Me. Oh, uh, Danny James. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, I actually started watching it because a friend of mine works at Now TV and he's been raving on about it to me. And then also there was the masterclass at the TV festival. Yes. Right? Check and, it out on YouTube if you'd like. Yeah, I'll go and watch it on YouTube. And I missed it, but I saw him walking in the corridor. I was like, oh, is that him? Oh, yeah, of course. That program, if you think about it, a lot of the great stuff in it is set around a pub. All the good stuff happens in the pub, right? So now this is when I'm talking about when I'm talking about pitches. All the great stories are told in those kind of environments, like you know, whether it's like a place of worship where you hang out with friends, or whether it's like someone's house, or whether it's like you know, social like a pub over a pint. If you can tell these stories in these types of settings, that's the kind of stories. It's not a topic; it's more the storytelling that we want to tell for our audience because that's how they connect. So when you're sitting over a, a cup of coffee in a coffee shop, you're listening to your friend, you're really into that moment. Doesn't matter where you are; you could be in Botswana or you could be in like Bond Street, yeah. right? You're in the moment with them, listening over that favorite thing—the cup of joe that you've got. Same thing with the pub. So the same thing can pertain to people pitching. Is this? Can you tell me the story in a way that your friend will go and tell somebody in the pub after? Because that's what I want. I want yeah. that. I want that story. Second thing is. The audience we're trying to reach is the younger one. So the big thing for us is, will they share it? When I say share it, will they talk to their friends on WhatsApp about it? Guys, did you see that thing on the BBC about skin lightening? This is incredible. Like, I didn't know these these products had, like, chemicals in it, right? 
start to WhatsApp thread with a friend, okay? Is it the kind of story that your friend will then share on other social media platforms and have a comment on? Is it the kind of thing that is, will generate conversation because it's important to them? So that's the second thing. And if someone says to me, well, I'm not sure my friends would share this. All right, well, why are we pitching the story in the first place? That's really yeah. important. Like, if your friend's not going to share it and you're the target audience I'm going for, like, how's this going to work for us? We want it to have a life beyond exactly. the first place that you put Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I think that's really important. And then the third thing is to mainly look at, like, how are we telling the story and where we're putting it? So I think traditionally, you know, news broadcasters, because we've got access to all of these different, like, social media platforms and our own platforms, which are very important, we just dump everything everywhere. The thing is, it's not about dumping everything everywhere. It's about working out where is the highest peak of interest on those different platforms and is it worth putting it in because we're going to get an audience we never normally would get. So those are the three things. So when somebody's up pitching something, they think about like, hi, Rob, I've got this story I want to do. Okay, what's on? It's on skin lightning creams and like the legal mercury in them and they're still being sold. Okay, where are we putting it? But I think we should definitely put it on YouTube because people, YouTubers review the creams. So let's tap into that market. Let's tap into Instagram because there's sponsored feeds coming off of these creams. And let's also tap into like, you know, I don't know, Twitter, because there's streams of conversation about colorism and using creams. Great. Let's pick those three and the BBC News website. Very important. We don't have to put it everywhere. Yeah. And this is this is what we're trying to do. Like more quality, yeah, and less quantity. Like instead of churning it out, let's actually like think a bit cleverly about where we're putting it in the first place. Yeah. So you can devote more energy on making those things absolutely right for the platform absolutely absolutely the past two years give or take have been not great in terms of like the underlying current and tone of, of news and i think a lot of people are sort of perhaps limiting their sort of news and current affairs and things yeah. just because the sort of the big news as it were is is quite depressing yeah. sort of uncertainty yeah it's it's not um yeah not necessarily <laughs> most, the, the most inspiring times in lots of ways how does that impact on the kind of stories you know the one you just mentioned they seem a lot more kind of personal and kind of removed from the sort of like the, the bigger sort of more depressing narratives well i think it's a really 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 good question right because i when i speak to a lot i'm 34 doesn't matter if i speak to somebody 40 or somebody 21 i get the same thing always oh, i don't watch the news it's too depressing so it's obviously had an impact on both of them in some way yeah whether the 40 year old has gone through 10 years of great news and suddenly like I don't like the news <laughs> I'm seeing now or the 21 year old has just been exposed to news like is, is this, this what, what the world is, is, is yeah is this what it's going to be like for the rest of my life yeah is this the rest is this the world for the rest of my life like they can't it, it, it's, it's difficult and I think like actually the way people consume news is different that in a way they might not be consuming a news channel but they might be consuming news through their favourite YouTuber yeah. so how how is it changed for us in terms of production I think like our production values have gone up I think our storytelling has changed completely. So we're still doing the same journalism, we're doing different storytelling. So an example of that is the skin lightning one I mentioned, right? The top line of that is these creams are bad, there's mercury in it, people in you know, people certain shops in the UK are still selling it, what are trading standards doing? Okay. How do you make that personable without it just being you know, this is the BBC News? Skin lightning creams are still being sold in the UK shops. Trading standards have said this. This is one person who's had a bad reaction. Thank you. Goodbye. Yeah. And now the weather. Okay, great. What's that going to do for me? Nothing, right? And what you do, you make it more personable, like you said. It's the human, it's the motion. So what we did with skin line was we used two YouTubers who have used these creams, didn't know what was really in them, um, and have spoken openly about the other themes that come out about the pressures of being a young black woman and using these creams, which is colorism and like, you know, white being beautiful, the way 
it's portrayed, and this is why they use these creams, and why, like, in African cultures, like, using the creams is like, you just do it. Because the mum will just give it, hey, yeah. hey, baby girl, just use the cream. What's the cream? It's this cream. Why am I using this cream? Because that's what we do. We use this cream. That's just like a, you know, basic generic stereotype, right? But there's all these other conversations going on around it. So what we've tried to do is, if there is a news conversation, there's a lot of noise, it's how you go beyond the noise and take a step back from it and go, actually, what are the other themes that we can pull out from it? So people say, like, Brexit is boring. It's probably boring, I think, because there's not much happening. But yeah, but I know what you mean. It's There's a lot of it because it's constant. It's constant. Yeah. So it's confusing, you know... For some people it's terrifying for some people it's exciting you know there's different there's obviously both sides of it and i think what's interesting though is like how can you tell stories about brexit without people feel like it's being chucked at them constantly i think it's really important that we still do the due diligence and the journalism around it right so you know at the same time like i, I think like the way the news industry is now working it has to think about new ways of telling stories you know, we did some report recently, I think, you know, BBC Research found out, you know, audiences want more positive news stories, right? Well, not all the news is positive. So finding those positive news stories is hard as well. Yeah. You know, but we are trying. We are trying to do that. I think the other thing is, like, trying to get the audience involved as well. I think that the audience's participation, so it doesn't just feel like it's a one, this, like, broadcast machine, just like, blah, 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 yeah. blah, 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 news, blah, 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 blah. Like, we are and you're not. So yeah. this is to us. Yeah, and, us and, them. and I th- the us right. and them actually, and I think yeah. that that kind of thing doesn't doesn't work. And I think like you know, if you look at the rise of like opinionated blogs more, you know, even in the U.S. elections, even in like you know things that happen in the U.K., there's a lot of opinion that's like coming out because people are being reinforced. So we're not really. I mean, I work for BBC, right? I am impartial. People might say he's not impartial, but I am impartial, and my journalism is impartial. But that doesn't mean we can't tell stories in clever ways, in much more clever ways, where we still cover all sides of the, the coin, but we tell it in a way that can be relatable to a number of different people. And it doesn't matter if you agree or not, it has to be relatable in some way. And I think that's the thing that we need to, like, you know, that's, a, that's the thing of the future, basically. Great. So lots of opportunities for new storytellers out there. Yes. Who have stories to tell. Exactly. And maybe see that their stories aren't out there just yet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And for anybody sort of thinking about, you know, becoming a storyteller or, or a journalist what um what kind of advice would you give them <laughs> um there's always a story everywhere around you uh, it goes back back to that pub analogy i think like you know i've some of the stories that i've wanted to do or i've done have actually just come from like conversations with like friends who don't watch the news or anything they just ask the question yeah I'm like, oh Actually, that's really interesting. I don't know the answer to that. Um, let me get back to you. Yeah. Wait a minute, this has piqued my interest. So talk, talk a lot to your friends, right? Um, I think the other thing is like, in terms of like thinking about stories in general, the opinion you have of something might not be like the general opinion of something, right? And I think why that's why it's important to have diverse voices when you're thinking about stories and the kind of stories you pitch because you will then get a different lens on things and sometimes it's about putting things through lenses and perspectives and trying to get those perspectives out and i think you know there are many great documentary strands that do that um i think the other thing though to think about and this is this is this is really like my, my big tip so like wrestling for example i keep going back to wrestling but i've not realized until doing this podcast how much of an influence it's had on me as a storyteller 
wrestling is a really interesting way of telling stories because they they catch on to things happening in the world in in communities around the world and they use that as part of their storytelling so whether it's like you know a war somewhere or whether it's like picking up on certain nuances about communities or and whether you agree with it or not they tell stories in that way they're very clever they tell great stories over a period of time like wrestling some wrestling um showdowns can last two years in the build-up to a big wrestling match but for two years it'll take on that journey to build it up right so an example is like you know the rock the rock is like one of the biggest actors in the world and one of the biggest wrestlers he had a build up to a match with like another big wrestler and it, they built it up like 18 months in advance you have to wait 18 months for that and every now and then they just drop a bit more of a segment between them two and then the run up it they really wrapped it up in a lot of marketing and media and then it was like massive right it's even bigger than like a you know big sort of movie release exactly in a way, that kind of anticipation it is like a movie release exactly so i think wrestling like you know so okay going back to my point i'm not saying watch wrestling what I'm saying is the things that you enjoy watching, like your favorite Netflix doc or your favorite like iPad program or whatever it is, you can learn about stories and storytelling through those things. And I think, like for example, Ugly Delicious, I love watching that on Netflix. You've got a chef who's telling chefs in America about the food that they're really interested in, the, the, you know, the restaurants that they run in America, and he's basically explaining how that where that food is actually originally from, then taking them back there and then bringing them with bringing them bringing them to these restaurants and like you know taking a guy from brooklyn who loves pizza and makes pizza makes american new york pizza taking to naples because this is the home pizza and the guy in naples going that's not pizza in america this is pizza and the guy going no this is pizza and having a discussion and then finding out what's behind the pizza or how does a pizza become something different in japan they put some noodles on it it becomes something completely different over there right that for me is an example of how you can take cookery for example talk about politics also drum into creativity around food and then also talk about how the world is actually very small yeah. in that one pizza changed three different perspectives yeah in that way i think like the things you watch and consume just don't do it don't do it only for enjoyment do it so you can learn something. and that's why i made that save me reference because save me every ba- amazing scene of save me is in, for me is in that pub yeah and that's where I feel like some of these stories come out from is these, these social settings. So and you're kind of borrowing and you're building and you're going, and then this happened, and, and then, then this that happened, happened. Yeah. and then people are throwing their questions in yes. immediately, like the follow up. But then, but what about that? And then yes. that's you're developing exactly. right there and then, aren't you? Exactly. Yeah. How exciting. So listen, be curious, go to the pub, go to the pub. or at least, you know, talk to your friends, be curious, like really be curious yeah. and, and pay attention to all kind of stories and influences and sources you can Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ravin. So it's been a fantastic spending time with you and finding out like how you do what you do and you know, how you got here. Thank, Thank you, so, you much. so much for having me. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Get With The Programme. If you want to find out more about us, you can go to our website, www.thetvfestival.com or you can find out more about the network or wants to watch on our Twitter and Instagram pages at the network underscore tv or at wants to watch underscore tv we'll have more episodes coming very soon but in the meantime there's plenty in our archive for you to listen to thank you again and we'll see you soon bye